listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick Community Radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDI. How do you like that? The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct, correct, correct. Good luck. We care about your world. Stay tuned. Happy New Year. I'm Tony Epstein, and it's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. My guest today is Linda Kahanov. She's a horse trainer, riding instructor, and leader of equine-facilitated learning workshops all over the world. Linda Kahanov is the author of The Way of the Horse, The Tao of Equus, Riding Between Worlds, The Power of the Herd, and most recently, The Five Roles of the Master Herder, a revolutionary model for socially intelligent leadership, which we'll be talking about today. First off, I loved your book. Oh, great. I'm so glad to hear that. 
I'm not a horse person, but I've interviewed a couple of horse people in the last year, and I just loved this book. I didn't expect to love it as much. I mean, leadership has never been something that I have been that concerned about, and power dynamics obviously are are everything in, in human relationships, but I've, I've been one of those people who tend to avoid the asserting of power, and this book is very eye-opening for me. Yeah. You know, I was one of those people who had seen power misused, so I would abdicate it now and then, and, and I realized over time that was actually as hurtful sometimes as overusing it. Yeah. I've observed the abuse of power a lot early in my life, and I have run the other direction. But as you say in this book, we need a balance of it. Yeah. Yeah, we have to be able to stand up to people who are misusing power. To do that, you have to have a really sophisticated understanding of power. So, yeah, it wasn't a subject I ever thought I'd be interested in either. But after a while, I realized it was essential. Yes. So how did you get into this? What what triggered the interest? What inspired the interest for you? Well, I, uh, I was working in radio when I was a music critic, and I was irritated with people on a regular basis. There was so much dysfunction, and so I got a horse to get as far away from people as possible on a regular basis just to find a way to renew myself, and I realized that the horses were so... I was incapable of, you know, sweet-talking the horse into doing something or, you know... The horse didn't care about my position at work, didn't care what kind of degree I had. I actually had to be authentically influential with the horse, and sometimes that meant using power to stand up to a horse that might be intimidating or break up fights between horses or you know, motivate a horse to do something they didn't want to, just maybe even to save their life. And so I realized that I was actually quite inept at using power unless it was related to, you know, a position where my position already sort of gave me the power that I needed among people. And yeah, so that's, that's what happened. And what happened was too, is that as I became more aware of how to engage this kind of influence with horses, then I also found out that my life with people was changing at work and at home, that, that I was able to influence people in these really clear and effective ways that I couldn't explain for many years. I couldn't explain what was shifting, but people would notice it, and they would ask me. I would be like, yeah, I don't know what to say other than I'm learning something from the horses here. (laughs) So I I just started writing about it, and so now I've written five books on the subject. And how long has this evolution been going on through this writing process, learning and writing process? Since I got my first horse in 1993. Okay. <laughs> so about <laughs> 25 years. Yes. It seems as though from what I've been gathering from my conversations with people and reading your book and books from other horse people, that we have to assert a leadership role with horses, and sometimes we have to establish dominance with, with a horse that that needs that, like particularly horses that have an immature dominance streak in them? Yes, and, you know, horses that are are naturally dominant and are still in that immature use of the dominant role, it can be very dangerous to themselves and other horses and to people, and 
if you don't know how to stand up to that effectively and teach an immature dominant horse how to be considerate of others and how to manage their tremendous power, a lot of times these horses hurt somebody and then they're put down. So the horse's life is literally in danger if you can't help them learn how to manage their power. And you have to be able to wield the mature role of dominant with them to show them how to do that. It's such fascinating stuff because we don't learn any of this in school. Most of our parents, I mean, they tend to assert dominance and often in a dysfunctional way. And we either rebel or we learn to repeat that behavior in our lives. And one of the fascinating things about this is you focus on, well, the book is The Five Roles of the Master Herder, a revolutionary model for socially intelligent leadership. And you write about some nomadic pastoral cultures that live and coexist with these herd animals together as, as partners. And they know something about how to relate to power in a, what you call a balanced and healthy way that, that doesn't seem to exist in our Western culture. Can you talk about that and what we can learn from them and what we lack in our culture? Absolutely. When I was writing my fourth book, which is called The Power of the Herd, A Non-Predatory Approach to Social Intelligence, Leadership, and Innovation, I was researching the history of power across multiple cultures, and I sort of stumbled upon what eventually became the master herder model, the five roles of a master herder, when I was researching these nomadic pastoral cultures. And they're cultures that move with large animals. They migrate. And they create these interspecies communities where they are as much influenced by the behavior and social structure of the animals as the animals are influenced by the behavior and social structure of humans. And a lot of these cultures even consider themselves half horse, half human, or half cow, half human. There are even reindeer cultures that consider themselves half reindeer, half human. And they're not kidding because actually they are as, like I said, as influenced by the animals as the animals are by them. And one of the things that we've lost an understanding of in our sedentary cultures, where we have these sort of hierarchical command control models, is that among large herbivores like horses and cattle, the leader animal and the dominant animal are often two different animals and that they perform specific functions to the, the health of the herd. And in our culture, we constantly mix up leadership and dominance. And a lot of times we might even overuse one or prefer one over the other and not realize that they're both essential to handling and being influential in our families and at work and in a larger political system where we see lots of misuse of power these days. And so once you begin to see that the leader role has certain functions and the dominant role has certain functions, and that when those two roles are also balanced by the other three roles, which is the nurturer-companion role, which is the great connectors of the world are highly functional in that nurturing and companionship role. And there's also the use of the sentinel role when you think of shepherds guarding their sheep, for instance. That's a shepherd engaging the sentinel role, which is watching the herd and their dynamics in relation to threats and opportunities in the environment. 
And then finally, these master herders separate all four of those forms of influence from the role of predator. And in our culture, a lot of times we think of power in terms of predatory behavior. And we don't realize that there's actually amazing forms of power that are completely non-predatory that can influence a group and even protect a group without actually moving in for the kill. And so these master herders are not masters in terms of being in a master-slave relationship. They're actually masters of these five roles, and they know when and how to use these roles for the good of the herd and the tribe, as well as the individual. And so when I was writing the five roles of a master herder, at first I was thinking I was going to call it something like the five roles of effective leadership until I really understood that a master herder is more than a leader. So it's not quite accurate to call this leadership because the leader is just one of several roles of influence. So I use this term master herder to describe a strong, compassionate, well-balanced leader who also acts as a caretaker and a guardian. And so when they can expertly juggle all five of these roles, managers of large animals can moderate power plays, they can nurture individual talents and needs, they can keep the group together during droughts and wars as well as during times of peace and prosperity. So these are really powerful, socially intelligent people who actually learned when and how to use the five rules from observing her behavior. And this is relevant because now more than ever, all the old senses are falling down, social structures involving, you know, power. And people are like running amok out there is really what's happening. It's like a, you know, as the information age has come to us in such a way that, you know, People have access to information. They can work from home if they want. If you make them angry at work, they might quit and do something more infuriating than that even. They might actually create a business that becomes your competition. And so seeing how these master herders work with free, empowered animals and help to socialize those animals to become productive members of a high-functioning herd, these master herders move with these animals without senses. They don't have senses to control their animals. And they have very little reliance on restraint. And so they actually have to have the herd bond with them and trust them and stay with them even when there aren't any senses to confine them. Are there any correlating models of that behavior in our human world? I think occasionally somebody accidentally learns how to wield all five roles. In The Power of the Herd, I talk very specifically and in depth about George Washington as an example of somebody who accidentally achieved the balance of all five rules. But the thing about George Washington is that he learned it from horses and other animals. He was an exceptional horseman. A lot of people don't even realize that George Washington was considered one of the finest, not just riders, but one of the finest horse trainers in the colony. And as I was researching his life and how he was able to use power, I could see that he had this functional understanding of all five of these rules and that he would use them for great effectiveness when others around him had no idea what he was doing or why he was capable of pulling off something like winning the Revolutionary War. 
And I really believe if it wasn't for George Washington and his capacity to function in all five roles, that we would have lost that role. So we would be speaking with probably an English accent right now or something. And the roles of the horses in what they taught him and the way horses train people who work with horses. Yes. And because I came to horses later in life, I was in my 30s, I was immediately excited about the personal benefits that I was receiving from working with horses and how they affected and enhanced my human relationships at home and at work. And I thought, wow, what if somebody could isolate these lessons and teach this to people through, there, there are just certain elements of learning this kind of balance of power and influence and forming effective partnerships with the others and gaining the trust of a thousand pound animal that makes learning these skills really efficient and very fast. So that over the last 25 years, I actually have developed ways, I've isolated these various skills and developed certain horse activities that people can come out to the ranch here, or I actually travel all over the world now. And we have people who've never worked with horses before come out and learn these skills very efficiently and go back home and say, this is the best leadership training program they've ever engaged in. And so you don't have to be a horse person now to learn these skills with horses. And it's most effective to learn the skills with the horses. However, not everybody's ready to go out to the barn or convinced that they should, or maybe they're even a little afraid of horses. And so I've learned how to isolate some of these skills and teach them in purely human settings. But the most effective way to learn the skills is to do a combination of, you know, sort of the indoor work of how do we take this back to the human world, as well as working with specially trained horses that can challenge you appropriately in a safe way. These are not riding activities. These are all activities done on the ground. And so I have a variety of different businesses and teams out and executive teams and people who are there promoting to leadership positions or people who are showing some dysfunctional behavior at work. And they can learn the new skills efficiently. And it's also really fun to work with the horses. People are just delighted. Their eyes light up. You know, I just got a letter today from somebody who is CEO of a major company who said, her experience working with the horses changed everything for her, and it was really profound and moving, but it immediately positively affected her relationship when she got back to work. So why do you think people are more receptive to learning these skills with horses rather than with other people? Well, you can't fool a horse. The horse doesn't respond to you in a, like a theoretical play-acting sort of way. So you've actually honed the right combination of skills to influence the horse, or you don't. And they don't hold grudges either. So you can be fumbling around and not know what you're doing, and they'll model what happens to you when you're like that, which can be a real eye-opening experience for people to realize how dysfunctional they are in terms of trying to influence their coworkers or their family members or their spouse or their teenager or whatever, and the horses will show them what they're doing that is completely dysfunctional. And then once they learn what to do, the horse will immediately show the positive feedback of how efficient and effective the person is being. And with humans, it's a little bit harder to learn. You can learn it. 
but there's also a way in which a human might be susceptible to a person's job description or, you know, if somebody's promoted to a management position, there will be some people who will defer to you just because you have that title, whereas a horse doesn't care what your title is. You're either authentically empowered and focused and able to gain trust while also holding appropriate boundaries, or you're not. If you're just joining us, my guest is Linda Kohanov, a horse trainer, riding instructor, and leader of equine-facilitated learning workshops all over the world. And she's the author of numerous books, including this book we've been talking about, The Five Roles of the Master Herder, a revolutionary model for socially intelligent leadership. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Goddard College Community Radio. It seems like horses are like amazing mirrors for us. And I just had a conversation yesterday with another horse person. It was a follow-up interview. And one of the fascinating things is that horses perform the role of something very much like a spiritual teacher that even a human spiritual teacher probably cannot do for another human being. Yeah, it's true. There is a spiritual element to this that is really quite moving and quite astonishing to some people. But it makes sense when you realize that, for instance, the Buddha, when he was Prince Siddhartha, was an exceptional horseman. He was able to work with horses that would kill other people. And to do that, I actually had a really intense abused stallion that I learned some of these skills with or he would have killed me, and I realized that I had to have an extreme level of mindfulness, and I had to be able to use my own body and my own breathing and go to a place where I was empowered, compassionate, and centered so that I actually learned how to use my nervous system to calm and focus the out-of-control nervous system of this enraged, abused animal. And there is a similar story of the Buddha being able to do this. And it's often used to show how maybe he was supernaturally gifted. But I could see that some of the things that he was doing and then some of the things he talked about as he developed meditation and mindfulness and taught this to humans, that it's very clear that he could have easily learned these things from a horse and it was not actually a supernatural feat. It's something that if you're willing to treat the horse as a sentient being, and you're increasingly willing to work with horses that are troubled in some way or aggressive in some way, you actually develop these skills naturally. I would love for you to talk more about how you accomplish that with a horse. And we know that animals, and obviously that includes horses, are very sensitive to the emotions of human beings and the intentions, not only of human beings, but of any predators that may be around them. So I'm really curious yes, how you is, do that. That's an interesting point is that, you know, humans over-identify as being predators. We've grown up in a predatory culture. Mm-hmm. Conquest-oriented cultures are innately predators. Mm-hmm. But we're omnivores. We have the teeth and the digestive system that's closer to a vegetarian. But, you know, we've learned how to engage predatory forms of behavior. And 
Horses are non-predatory animals. Sometimes people call them prey animals. And then what's interesting is that over the years, I began to see that they're very powerful and influential and courageous, but they're not using predatory forms of power. They're using non-predatory power. And so the horse teaches people how to be powerful and compassionate and balanced and how to separate predatory forms of power and influence from non-predatory forms of power and influence. And sounds to me that this is not something that you can easily put into words. This is something that, that we have to experience directly with the horses. There's a significant amount of what goes on that you can't speak about. And that's the same thing with leading and influencing people. They did a study in the 1990s from psychologists and found that only about 10% of human communication is verbal. That leaves 90% of the messages we send back and forth to each other in that nonverbal range. That means you'll never be able to talk about it. But you can actually see it in action and, and use some of these nonverbal elements and learn them methodically. I have different terms for things that people can learn to do, but what they're learning is actually in the range of nonverbal communication, that they can learn it and reproduce it over and over again. So I actually had come up with a new modality in the last year that I call sentient communication, and it really is about using breathing and heart rate and blood pressure and your ability to change those and be able to change that in others. This is something we used to think of as supernatural, but you can actually teach somebody relatively quickly how to use their breathing to cause a horse to suddenly look at you and come to you at a significant distance. I have a a video on YouTube, actually, to this effect that you can take a look at. If you look up my name, Kohanov, on YouTube, and then put in heart breathing, then you'll see a video of me actually using this technique I call heart breathing to get a horse to look at me and come to me, and the horse is like 30 feet away from me. And so people can learn how to use these skills. It looks magical, but it's not. It's just simply using really sophisticated forms of nonverbal communication. And this is a deep form of emotional and social intelligence that you're talking about learning. And they teach some aspect of this in martial arts training. And my last kitty from her, I actually learned how to purr from just observing her. And I would send her cat kisses from across the room and she would return them right away, you know, the slow blink. And she would start purring immediately. And I tried, you know, I was very curious and I tried to see if I could make myself purr. And I learned how to do that. And as I do it, I get these rushes. You talk a lot about oxytocin in the book, which I, I love. And when I do that purring, I'm changing my nervous system. or I'm completely changing my bodily and emotional experience. And I can feel rushes of what I suspect is oxytocin in my body. Wow, yeah. Oh, I would love to see that. I mean, I don't purr the same way the cat does because they do it kind of like people who do circular breathing. I can't do circular breathing. If I could do circular breathing, I think I could purr like a cat. But I do something very similar, and it has a very profound effect on me instantaneously. And Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, my husband could teach you how to circular breathe. He's uh, <laughs> 
he's a musician and he plays, he learned to play the didgeridoo from an Aboriginal man. He's actually a recording artist. His name is Steve Roach and he has oh, over 150. I, lo- I love his music. Oh, great. I'm glad you know who he is. He just got nominated for a Grammy. Wow. I just love his music. Well, he does music workshops now and then, so you may want to get in touch and, and he could teach you how to circular breathe. It wouldn't take very long at all. Wow. But it's amazing what we can learn from animals. Things that Absolutely. that we might not even imagine that we could learn in this world. Like I learned from watching my dog, the way dogs wiggle, they wag their tail and they wiggle their whole body. So I tried doing that because whenever he does that, he seems very happy. So I would try that. And it has an even more powerful effect than smiling. And I've done lot of different forms of meditation and breathing exercises and breath is an incredibly powerful science that is largely unknown. It's amazing what being conscious of how you're breathing and why you might want to breathe in different ways. You know, when you see that it can affect a thousand pound animal, then you know it's going to affect humans so that we actually teach people how to do this technique called heart breathing and then we teach them when to use it in groups of humans when people are afraid or panicking. And the person doesn't even have to know you're doing it, but you can absolutely turn a group around by engaging in this kind of breathing. So, yeah, and, you know, we learn also how to translate some of what we're doing into words to be able to communicate with people while we continue the nonverbal element. Because you can't just use the words. The nonverbal pieces have to be in place as well. Mm-hmm. Another wonderful thing about this book was I've had a, an issue with someone that I have to work with for years, and I've been kind of at my wit's end how to deal with it. And I have gotten some really powerful insight just from reading this book about other possible ways of approaching this situation. Yes, wow. Well, how would you describe the person? I would describe this person as being very predatory and using very immature, dominant, predatory behavior. Yes. It's, you know, the people who seem to cause the most obvious problems at home or at work are usually people who are immature, dominant. And you can be 75 years old and be an immature, dominant. I, when I use that term, I just mean that the person is really talented in the use of the dominant role, and that's their inclination or their kind of like go-to behavior, but they're doing it in an unconscious way, and they haven't really learned how to refine that incredibly useful skill if it's done well and kept in balance with the other four roles. And the most dangerous people of all are people who combine the immature dominant role with the predator role. I call them predatory dominance, and dictators generally have that combination. And they can be incredibly destructive, but because they're around a lot of people who don't know how to use power in a sophisticated way, they can actually get a lot done. They can push through and intimidate people and, you know, corral them and use them for their own purposes. And everybody else is standing around going, we don't know what to do. And so once you understand how people use these rules and how you help them to learn to do something different and help them to see the benefits of doing something different, then you might have some hope of influencing somebody like that. But the most important thing I would imagine that you got from reading the book is how you don't have to take the behavior personally anymore. 
Oh, I, I've long since gotten over that. What I've learned is that I don't have to respond in a knee-jerk fashion. You know, I don't have to be triggered into responding in kind by activating my predatory and dominant nature. I don't want to get into that level of of relationship, of conflict with this person. I want to use more of the the Aikido or, or even the, the Tai Chi approach to it or a heart-breathing approach where I calm my nervous system and I become aware of other options that I wouldn't when I'm feeling stressed and triggered into fight-or-flight mode. Yes, that's so much a part of handling somebody like that. Which is what um, this person the- triggers in me whenever... I encounter him when he's in one of those spaces, which is often, unfortunately. Yeah, with an immature dominant, the power plays are endless. And you actually have to learn how to address the behavior as it comes up and channel it in a more productive direction. Mm-hmm. And part of the, one of the first steps is to control your own nervous system. Because, for instance, with really dominant horses, they come at you and they actually... They use intimidating body language that affects your nervous system by causing you to hold your breath and yield and kind of collapse and back up or something. And they're doing that very purposefully, and they can do it at a distance. It's really fascinating to see. And so what you need to learn, which it sounds like what you're doing, is it's not a mistake that a highly dominant person or horse will cause you to hold your breath and start to go into a fight or fight mode. Their body language and their words that people use are designed to do that. But what you have to do is notice that it's happening, and then you have to start breathing, and you have to do the counterintuitive thing in response. Start breathing. Hold your ground without yielding and without fighting back. Fighting back with a dominant is useless. It enrages them, and they get worse. One of the things that I've seen people try to use with dominant people is they try to shame them into yielding or shame them into submission or shame them into acting better. But when you use shaming language with a dominant, they become more aggressive. So you have to actually learn how to hold your ground, not yield, and not fight back, and not shame the person, but to channel their behavior in a more productive direction and then give them immediate positive feedback when they start to respond to you in a positive way. Whereas most people just hold grudges. So a dominant person never gets to understand what are the benefits to acting in a more collaborative way? They don't know what that is because people either are intimidated by them and yield or these people get mad and they explode and they leave and they hold a grudge. So dominant teenagers, for instance, a lot of times, you know, they, they become bullies, but they don't have anybody who can help them learn how to use this power in a more productive way. I mean, I believe that jails are filled with people who have a gift for the dominant role who maybe grew up with really kind, nurture, companion parents who just simply didn't know how to stand up to these people and how to help them learn how to channel their power appropriately. And our culture seems to be particularly dysfunctional or lacking in any of that kind of knowledge and wisdom of how to work with that energy. Yes, because what happens is either you get people who are naturally dominant who can stand up to other dominants and they, you know, fight it out and engage in some form of pecking order, 
and then everybody else yields and submits or simply ostracizes the person or walks away or doesn't interact with them. And so when this is the case, nobody is moving forward in a productive way. Right. Or they turn it into a sport. Like we have lots of sports that embody that practice. And then the vast majority of people just sit back and watch as as a spectator sport. And it's entered politics where it seems like we have a perfect example of an immature dominant, a pre, an immature predatory dominant. And people want that. Not everybody, obviously, but enough people to elect them. Yeah, yeah, Donald Trump is a great example of an immature dominant slash predator. And he has almost no access to the nurture companion role. He's an anti-sentinel. He, he refuses to look at the truth of the situation. He wants to create his own world and his own truth. And, you know, humans are capable of that to a certain extent. But, you know, a lot of people, I would say during the election, even Hillary was not using the sentinel role properly either, looking at the dynamics of the country and various groups in relation to each other and to the larger marketplace, the political atmosphere. You have to kind of look at the truth of the situation before you understand what needs to change to move it in a direction that you would find productive. And, you know, Hillary had some things in common with Donald in the sense that she, both of them, and all of us here, really, have grown up in a highly predatory culture. The press is intensely predatory. The press, a lot of times, has gotten away from its sentinel role, and what a predator does is they sort of slink around the edges of a herd, and they're looking for the animal that is the most vulnerable, and they use that animal's vulnerability against them to eat them. In our culture... Predatory behavior happens anytime somebody is looking at you and trying to find your vulnerability so they can use those vulnerabilities against you for personal gain. They don't necessarily kill you, but, you know, Hillary and Donald both grew up in intensely predatory environments. And I see people would complain about Hillary's secretiveness and Donald's aggression but both of those, to me, are two sides of the same dysfunctional coin that happens when you grow up in an intensely predatory environment and you're responding or reacting to the challenges in a way in which you're not working at a level of high enough sophistication to do something different. If you're just joining us, my guest is Linda Kahanov a horse trainer, riding instructor, and leader of equine-facilitated learning workshops all over the world. And she's the author of numerous books, including this book we've been talking about, The Five Roles of the Master Herder, a revolutionary model for socially intelligent leadership. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. It's very discouraging to look at our society, our culture, and particularly the leadership in this country. And it doesn't... I mean, I'm a very optimistic person in general, but when I look into the political arena, I'm very discouraged. What I see more than anything is that we need leaders now that have access to all five worlds. And we actually 
have two political parties in this country that tend to overemphasize two different roles. So, like, the Republicans tend to lean toward the dominant role and the predator role. You know, so the predator is always cutting programs or cutting this and that or culling this or, you know, deciding what kind of cuts to make. And the dominant role is the one that, you know, sets boundaries. So, like, when Donald talks about creating the wall, that's a classic dominant move. Fill the wall to keep people out. <laughs> and, you know, so that's that Republican overemphasis of those two roles. And I see a lot of times the Democrats overemphasize the nurture companion role and more like a visionary leader role. And you need all five roles to function effectively among free, theoretically empowered people. So I think we're, we're, what we're seeing now is we're at a high level of dysfunction based on the fact that we all have to up our game and we all have to become more balanced and functional. Well, I took the Master Herder professional assessment at the end of the book, and my assessment is very unbalanced. It doesn't have to... You're, to be balanced, your scores don't have to be even. It just has to be how are they being used according to your job description or right. the context. context in which you took it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, tell me, if you feel comfortable, tell me what, what stood out for you in that assessment. Well, as the predator, I scored very close to as low as, as it's possible to score. And then on the leader, I scored very close to the high and then even even the other three, there's a wide range. Like I was in the mid-40s for the Nurture Companion, the mid-30s for the Sentinel, and then the mid-20s for the Dominant. So a wide range and no sign of balance at all in there. Yeah, so what, what was your leader score? 50. 50, okay, yeah. So in some ways, if you could just bring the dominant and predator scores up, you don't want them really, in most situations, you don't really want those scores to be as high as the others, but you need them to be functional enough so that you're not abdicating those roles. And right now it sounds like you're pretty much abdicating the predator for sure. Um, And that's the part that can make tough decisions during lean time, you know. Right. I don't have that role. So it's understandable that, and I I have the luxury of not needing to really think about that. But I do recognize the need for predatory behavior. I mean, the health of the environment depends on on the culling of the weak in nature, in the animal world. It's something that we abdicate in our culture. On that, we try to protect everybody, the weak and the sick, which is a wonderful and noble thing to do. But in nature, that would cause, well... We're seeing the effects of it in nature to some degree that it breaks down into dysfunction. So I do recognize... Well, I mean, the the master herder would be protective and nurturing of all of its herd members. You know, herders eat much less meat than we do. So they're actually interested in, you know, their wealth is measured by how many healthy living members of the herd they have, and they will actually take an orphaned or lamb into the tent with them and they will feed it milk and then they'll put it back with the herd. So they do go out of their way to protect the vulnerable members of their own herd, but they have the capacity to, you know, if an animal really is weak and sick and there's no hope for the animal, they have to use the predator role to perform euthanasia. 
And also, you know, a lot of times when we talk about using the predator role, we can think of using the predator role to cull, culling, C-U-L-L, is a term that we use for when you kill an animal to keep life in balance with the available resources, right? But you can cull behaviors that are no longer productive for you. You can actively use your predator to do that. You can cull, let's say you find that you have, you know, five amazing opportunities and you find that you don't have the time or energy, you might have to decide which opportunities you keep and which opportunities you cull. Whereas sometimes people don't engage that and then they drain themselves of energy and focus. Sometimes we might have to cull relationships. Mm -hmm. So we might try to use the dominant role first for somebody who's being intimidating. And I always let people know that if I use the dominant role with you, it's because I care about you. Because if I didn't care about you, I'd go straight to the predator. I would call you. I would fire you or I would end our relationship. So the fact that I'm maybe getting a little tough here and holding my ground and being more directive means that I actually care about you. So bringing the predator in has lots of different implications for those of us who aren't necessarily killing anybody. And, you know, we're using the predator role thoughtfully rather than accidentally or some kind of knee-jerk reaction. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you tell a lot of wonderful stories that exemplify a lot of these dynamics. And it would be wonderful if you could share some stories. One of them that I think is particularly wonderful is the story of the three mares that you adopted. Oh, yes. I adopted from a local horse rescue three mares, and I call them the Spice Girls because they're all beautiful in their own unique ways, like the, like the group, the Spice Girls, but they're also about girl power. They're very clickish, and they don't really let any other horses into their little group. <laughs> so what was interesting about adopting these three mares is that they exemplified an inclination to use each one to use a different role. So I got to see how those roles played out in individuals who were uniquely talented in those roles. So that the smallest one, her name is Savannah, she's actually by far the most dominant. And she engages all the behavior you would see from a dominant. I mean, one of the things that immature dominants do, human or animal, is they'll attack others for little or no reason. And so this makes sense to them. To everyone else, it looks like, what? But to them, what they're trying to do is to keep everybody a little off balance so that everybody looks away and moves away when the dominant walks up. And they achieve this by occasionally attacking different herd members for little or no reason. So that's what Savannah would do. However, the use of the dominant role in a functional way is to herd other members away from danger or to drive them toward a goal. You need to use dominant energy. And so some horses get loose and run over to the corral where I have the Spice Girls, I don't have to worry about any fighting happening over the fence because Savannah will actually herd her little trio away from these new horses. And she's really good at breaking up fights, and you need that dominant energy for that. But again, she was, in the beginning, in more of that immature version of the dominant role. So, you know, when we feed the horses, they all had their separate feeder. And like an immature dominant, Savannah would walk up first and the others would move back. But then she wasn't satisfied with just eating first. She had to play queen of the herd throughout the entire meal so that 
you know, she'd eat for a while, and then she'd push one of them off of their food and then push the other one off of their food. So immature dominants especially have a, a sense of entitlement, an extreme sense of entitlement, and they're constantly engaging in power play. But over time, she has shown greater maturity, and so she's engaging in this unproductive behavior less, but she's still capable of hurting her herdmates away from danger or toward a goal. And she's very vigilant. She's always watching the environment. She's very protective of them, and they do depend on her for that. And then we have Layla, who is a beautiful mare. She's actually very unusual. She's a paint mare, and she has two blue eyes, so she's very striking. And Layla has the qualities of a leader. And a lot of times among domesticated herds, you don't actually see the leader step forward because a leader steps forward in novel situations. And they're the ones who show appropriate levels of caution but interest in new and novel things. And so what happens when something new is in the environment is the dominant herd member will herd everybody away from the new thing. They are very skeptical of new things. And then the leader will come out from the herd and walk toward the new thing, and then the others will follow the leader toward the new thing. And so they have this, even among horses, they have this tendency toward courage and curiosity and innovation. So I got to see this in action when we put some, some new corral panels into the corral where these mares were, and the striking green corral panels shining in the sunlight were new and, and scary a little bit. And Savannah, being the dominant, herded them all the way from this new thing. And then Layla came out and started walking toward the new thing and then sniffed the corral panels and then got really comfortable with them. And as a result, Brandy, the third bear, comes forward and follows Layla. And then Savannah, in spite of herself, now is curious and moves forward. And so then they're all standing around the new thing. But as a result of that, Savannah was very upset. She decided that that night she was going to really give Layla a hard time because Layla took on a leadership role, and the others were influenced by her. And so Savannah wanted to put Layla in her place, so Savannah kept her away from food and water for about an hour. And we see this behavior among humans, too. When somebody excels in a group or has a neat idea that the rest of the group moves toward, a lot of times the most dominant person will give that other leader a hard time. So we see this kind of instinctual behavior at work even. And then the interesting thing is that the third mare, Brandy, she has a natural inclination toward the nurturer and companion role. And so Brandy was the one who saw Savannah giving Layla a hard time for being the leader earlier in the day. And Brandy went over and just engaged in some mutual grooming with Layla, and then walked over and engaged in some mutual grooming with Savannah and eventually lured all three of them back together and they were all in this beautiful place of grooming each other. So Brandy did what the nurturer companion does, which is she has the capacity to bring everybody back together and help them to move through conflict in a more productive way. Going back to the oxytocin, you talk about how Grooming, when animals are grooming each other, and even when humans are grooming animals, it stimulates oxytocin in both the animals and the humans, and that calms everyone's nervous systems down. It opens up space for greater learning and cooperation. It's fascinating, the neurological side of that. Yes. 
Yeah, oxytocin is a, is a hormone that for many years people knew was present in women when they were going into labor and giving birth, and it's also responsible for milk production. And so in all female mammals that have given birth and are nursing, there's a huge amount of oxytocin being released. And they didn't realize that this same hormone can be released in men and then also can be released at other times. And so it's most reliably released in men or women who aren't pregnant and nursing when they're actually engaged in affectionate behavior, touch. Physical touch releases oxytocin. And they found, as they did studies, that when animals are grooming each other, they're releasing oxytocin. And oxytocin buffers the flight or fight response in favor of a calm and connect response. So there is a hormone in nature that's designed to override the fight or fight response and cause animals to come together in mutually supportive, mutually affectionate relationships. And it's released through touch and there's some other ways that they're saying that it's released. But it's interesting that in the master herder models that I studied, these nomadic pastoral tribes, the men spend a large amount of time being affectionate with the animals, grooming the animals, stroking the animals, milking the animals, and that this is releasing oxytocin in the animals, which causes social bonding, but it also releases oxytocin in these really powerful herders. And so a man in a master herder-type culture, they are incredibly powerful. They can stand up to really aggressive bulls and stallions. They can break up fights between animals. They can herd animals in really powerful ways, but that power is constantly being moderated by oxytocin and their engagement in nurture companion role. So it's so interesting to me now that a lot of these herding cultures, like the Fulani uh, cow herding culture in Africa, now that they are starting to leave their herds and move to the cities, these herders, former herders, no longer have the buffering power of affection and calmness and connection that they got daily from their animals. And what's happening is in the cities now, these men are some of the most aggressive people you will ever meet. They are actually being used by terrorists because their aggression is so out of control that they are actually very effective in terms of wreaking havoc in Africa with terrorist groups. It's fascinating stuff. You write about the work of other people, including Meg Daly-Olmert's work on interspecies evolution and how this buffering effect of oxytocin makes different species open up and be curious about each other, whereas instinctively they would either run or take the warrior role against a potential threat. And there's another story that you tell at the end of the book, which is pretty phenomenal, about the Hutos who encountered a mule deer that did something that was virtually incomprehensible, actually reaching out and approaching humans out of the blue, it seemed. Yes. Well, you know, I've seen over the years animals reaching out to humans in astonishing ways and drawing the humans back into their world. 
I had this experience with a horse that did this with me and drew me into a world that I had no idea existed. And so for many years, I'd been kind of entertaining the notion that maybe this idea of these animals that quote-unquote humans domesticated, maybe it was reciprocal or maybe sometimes it was initiated by the animal. And increasing research, including the oxytocin research that Meg Daly-Omer did, where she insists that this release of oxytocin was jump-started in our ancient cave-dwelling ancestors and that humans and animals came together through this interspecies release of oxytocin that buffered the flight-or-fight response and caused them to care about each other and connect with each other. And her contention, she wrote a book called Made for Each Other, The Biology of the Human-Animal Bond. Her contention is that the release of oxytocin caused these interspecies relationships to form and that, as a result, biochemically, we were changed as much as the animals. So, again, it's this mutual connection. And in the last chapter of my book, I actually found a modern example of a wild animal reaching out to humans and drawing the humans slowly into their world. And it was Joe Hutto and his wife who had a mule deer, a female mule deer, reach out to them. And then as a result, they got drawn over several years into an entire herd of mule deer. And so it was a great case study of how this is actually possible. And, and the various steps that happened along the way give us insight into how we can better enter into situations with other humans that we don't know so well, whether we're interacting with a new human culture or we are maybe promoted to a leadership role in another company or we're entering into another professional culture and how by using this natural progression, it's counterintuitive the way a lot of leaders enter into situations and try to force people into submission. But it gives us a template for more productive ways of working with people and building bridges with people of different philosophies and religions and, and cultures. And we have such a crisis in the world today. So many of our Western cultures are reacting against certain specific cultures, particularly Islamic cultures, which they perceive as this major threat. And how can we take those steps to bridge that sense of otherness? Yeah, and I, I think it is really important. Interestingly, we can draw upon our own Judeo-Christian heritage and then also the commonalities with a lot of the Muslim cultures, both of these cultures, as well as Mongolian cultures, all had nomadic pastoral cultures that influenced them before they became very settled and city-based. So we can reach out to each other through this commonality. The Bible itself is the story of a nomadic pastoral culture, this idea of shepherd leadership, Jesus as the shepherd, or you know, the nomadic pastoral culture that was the Jewish culture. These things they hold wisdom that we've lost. So we can go to church every week and read the Bible, and because we were conquered by a highly predatory, conquest-oriented culture, we can read the Bible and not pick up on this nomadic pastoral wisdom that's innate in that tradition. So you find people who call themselves Christians can be very predatory and aggressive, and they're not in connection to that original wisdom that would moderate that level of aggression. And the same thing with the Muslim world. There were 
nomadic pastoral cultures in the Muslim world. The Salani culture is, is a Muslim culture now, but it's also a nomadic pastoral culture. So I think that when all of our cultures became city-based, we simply lost a lot of this wisdom that was inherent in a different lifestyle that was intimately tied with animals and nature and moving with the rhythms of nature. And so it's time for all of us across the world to access the amazing power and leadership and social intelligence skills that our nomadic cousins had and combine them with the benefits of a sedentary culture, the technology that we're able to create, the stability that we can have in our lives as a result of it. So I think it's time for these two sides, the nomadic and the sedentary, to come together and learn from each other. And at that moment, I believe that we can all be whole and we can also have the tools that we need to move forward together. Well, how could we accomplish that? What would it take to make that happen? I'm proposing that everybody needs to learn the skills associated with all five roles of the master herder and that we will learn them the easiest if we can actually practice through working with large non-predatory animals like horses. And so I travel around the world and I present this information in indoor workshops and then invite as many people as possible to come out and actually do the work with horses. And it is absolutely life-changing for people. And it, it happens one person at a time. If you're just joining us, my guest is Linda Kohanov. She's a horse trainer, riding instructor, and leader of equine-facilitated learning workshops all over the world. And she's the author of numerous books, including this book we've been talking about, The Five Roles of the Master Herder, a revolutionary model for socially intelligent leadership. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Do you think there's any possibility that this could be introduced into our school systems? Oh, I have somebody in a local Tucson school system who teaches this five days a week in class, and then also they have monthly trips to the barn it's mm-hmm. for 7th and 8th graders. Mm-hmm. But I mean um, yeah. nationwide and even beyond. Well, it would, this is a multi-generational effort, and it has to start somewhere. But that's why, you know, I, I wanted to get the five rules of the Master Herder book out and then do a lot of traveling. And I have over 300 instructors who've been trained to teach this work indoors as well as have people come out and work with specially trained horses and, and use our methods. So, you know, we are spreading this far and wide. It's a grassroots movement. You know, just being able to have this conversation with you and, and have this perspective to pique people's interest. And hopefully they'll read the book and some will come out and study directly with the horses and and they'll see that their family life changes, their time at work changes. We have people bringing teams from different kinds of businesses and corporations and social service agencies that come out and learn this work. And it absolutely changes the way they function at the office. I've been incredibly moved by this book. It's just beautiful, beautiful stuff. And I've even cried, you know, with joy at some of the revelations in the book. And at the end, you write, 
the animal-human bond is not a byproduct of civilization or a contrived innovation. It's the heart of evolution in action. Yes. We have to stop thinking of ourselves as separate from nature and being able to realize that we didn't evolve to isolate ourselves from animals and nature. We evolved to be more connected, to be more collaborative with animals and nature. And we took a, a wrong turn at some point and started to see ourselves as disconnected from nature rather than looking for ways to connect more deeply and to be mutually supportive and mutually transformed by animals. And so, you know, once you make that connection, and you can't help but make that connection if you're going to study, for instance, a master herder material in any deep way. And so then this would, over time, also affect the environment and people's ability to care about the environment and to care about animals. So it has huge indications to change our perspective and our lives and the lives of others and other species in the process. And how would that help and influence the way we relate to other people, people that we perceive as threats to our existence or our way of life as some people are doing today? Because of the balance of being empowered, but knowing how to use that power to enhance the social system rather than to, you know, fight against it or manipulate people. If everybody is equally adept at all five roles, it's harder for any one person to take advantage of anybody. Mm -hmm. You you can see an immature dominant coming a mile away, and you actually have tools for knowing how to engage this person in a more productive way. You learn how to be powerful without being predatory. That changes your ability to influence others and stand up to others and and really learn how to stand together against people who are aggressive, but in ways in which we welcome them into the social structure rather than try to hurt them or kill them or discredit them. Mm. Um, And so the other element of it is that there's a significant amount of oxytocin released in someone who's balanced in the five worlds because they're spending a large amount of their time in nurturing and companionship-related activities when that happens, compassion increases. Your heart opens up. You feel more connected. And it changes you at a biochemical level. And so there really is a sense of being able to collaborate with others and negotiate with others in a caring way that's also empowered. So that, I mean, a lot of times people think that if you're caring and supportive that you can't set boundaries or be empowered. And you need the ability to use all five of these rules to understand how you can combine those two and that they're not opposites at all. So there's just so many benefits to stepping forward. And, you know, if you think about it, like, do you have a degree, um, Tonio, in something? I don't. But you, you still went to high school for 12 years, or you went to school for 12 years. I did. Okay, so that's how many years you spent learning how to read and write and you know, do arithmetic and learn about history and all of that. And yet, how many years have you spent learning how to engage emotional and social intelligence skills and leadership skills? Have you ever actually studied that? I I actually have quite a bit. Doing this radio show has really given me the opportunity to delve much more deeply into these things for the last several years. And all of the meditation and psychological 
emotional process work that I did many years ago was a great foundation for that work as well. So how many years do you feel like you've, you've studied these additional skills? Uh, about 40 years. Okay. So, you know, it takes time to study and learn these things as well, and you've made it a personal priority to do that. But how many people do you meet where they haven't spent hardly any time <laughs> studying emotional intelligence or social intelligence or leadership or power? How do mm-hmm. you use power effectively? Mm-hmm. Yeah, most people, unfortunately. Yeah. So what we're saying is that, you know, we shouldn't be saying that people should just learn these things accidentally. That's actually not effective. We're seeing the problems in our world today come from the fact that we were more willing to spend years learning how to read and write and, you know, work a computer and drive a car than we are to learn how to use power and influence and emotional intelligence skills and social intelligence skills. And the conflict we see in the world today is a result of not understanding that we need to learn these other things too. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So once in a while, somebody comes along who does accidentally achieve this. I mean, George Washington is one example. And, you know, he wasn't perfect. He learned these skills over a long period of time. And, and he was also a slave owner, you know. So toward the end of his life, his understanding of slavery and how it needed to be eradicated happened slowly over time. So he wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But we can't afford anymore to have someone accidentally learn these things. You know, our presidents are being expected to accidentally learn these things. And obviously, they're not learning these things. Mm -hmm. So we need to really be able to methodically teach people how to use power effectively in combination with, you know, that, that leadership needs to be more than just leading or dominating mm-hmm. or we need to actually have leaders who have a capacity to care about others, who have a capacity to set boundaries with aggressors without becoming overly aggressive themselves. And we would never say, oh, I think it would be good for you guys to learn brain surgery experientially, accidentally. We would never think that. And yet we think that somebody who's running a country and has access to the nuclear codes should just accidentally learn how to be a leader. Right. Accidentally learn how to be a, a compassionate and wise human being. Right. It would be nice if somehow we could embed this kind of learning into our culture as opposed to have it be something that a few people stumble upon accidentally. Exactly. You know, that's my, my orientation is to actually find ways to teach these skills and to even determine what the skills are. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing this for a good two decades now, and I still find that I'm learning every day. It's a really exciting time to be alive, and it's a really exciting field to be in. Mm-hmm. Well, I wish you the very best of luck in this work, because I think we all depend on this. Yes, and thank you, Tonya, for all the important work you're doing with your show and, and getting the word out about new ways of perceiving and being a, a more functional, compassionate human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and your book is a phenomenal example of that. And of all the things that I've come across, it's, it's an exemplary model of 
of how to actually approach this. And I don't think I've seen such a clear approach to actually putting this kind of wisdom into practice. I mean, there's so much lip service to this area, but very little that that is tangible and easily put into practice that is truly effective. I mean, there's there's so much out there, but this is... I mean, I, I gained a lot just in the first reading of the book, and I'm going to give myself the next week off from all other projects, and I'm going to be delving much more into this. And the importance of balancing these different aspects of how we relate to power is is so, so important. And I think it's so hidden. It's so out of view. I was basically clueless about this until reading your book. Wow, thank you. That means a lot to me. And I'm probably more aware of these things than most people. And I felt completely... I mean, I was like, wow. I mean, huge eye-opening ahas from this book, probably more so than than any others that I've come across. So I I think this is a phenomenal, phenomenal work. Wow, thank you so much. Um, if you want to go deeper and see some more practical skills, the book that came out before this, The Power of the Herd, actually has 12 chapters that are 12 practical guiding principles and how you engage some of this. I, I'm definitely going to be getting that book and delving into that as well because this work of yours is is profound. I mean, very, very powerful work. Thank you. Well, if you ever want to come to a, an actual workshop and work with the horses, let me know. I would love to. I, would, I really would love to. I'm, my life is, is very simple and low budget, but if I can find a way to do that, I, I think it would probably be the most powerful thing I could do. Yeah, and, you know, I can offer you a scholarship if you need it at the right time. Sometimes I have openings in workshops and would be pleased to have you join us. Mm, I would love to do that. I would love to do that. Okay, great. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. It's been a pleasure talking with you too. Why don't you talk about websites and how people can access more information about your work? Okay, well, I have two websites. One is masterherder.com. And it's just the words master and herder, all lowercase, all bunched together. And that one really focuses more specifically on the master herder work and the leadership training. And then I have another website, eponacrest.com, which has a greater variety of events that I do, some events that exercise intuition and creativity and other things like that. And so that website is E-P as in Paul, O, N as in Nick, A, I'm really in awe of this work. I've said that already, but um, I love it. I love what you're doing, and I applaud your work. And a lot of this work that I do is is sharing the work of people who are doing really powerful and wonderful work in the world. And this is right up there at the very top in terms of effective work. So... Again, thank thank you. you. Well, if you could email me when you're going to Airbus, and if I can put a link up on my Facebook page or something like that, I'd love to introduce people to your show and have people have access to this interview. 
I will do that. I will definitely do that. And again, thank you so much. This has been such a great pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. All my pleasure as well. Mm. And be well. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Linda Kohanov. She's a horse trainer, riding instructor, and leads equine-facilitated learning workshops all over the world. Linda Kohanov is the author of The Way of the Horse, The Tao of Equus, Riding Between Worlds, The Power of the Herd, and most recently, The Five Roles of the Master Herder, a revolutionary model for socially intelligent leadership. The ground was dry, but the air was full of sound. I've been through the desert on a horse with no name. It felt good to be out of the rain. In the desert, you can remember your name Cause there ain't no one for to give you no pain
And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week and Happy New Year. Thank you.